Now, there is a really effective way to get to know somebody if you want to start a conversation with someone, and it's this question that you could ask them. It's this, what's your story? Have you ever asked anybody that? What's your story? And it's effective because everybody has a story. We all have circumstances that brought us to where we are right now. We all have a story. If you were to ask me, what's your story? I would tell you it all started in South Korea, because that's where I was born. My parents were missionaries there. And we went from South Korea, and, and, and my story would go into my early teenage years when I really felt the Lord wanted me to be a pastor. And that really focused on my training. And that my story would take me to college and where, where I met my wife and, and started dating her. And, and my story uh, takes me to this, this road all the way up to Concord, New Hampshire from Richmond, Virginia, where I'm sitting at the wheel of a Penske moving truck with all my earthly belongings behind me trying to navigate the roads of New York City, which I don't recommend driving a Penske truck and doing that. It's a very miserable experience. But that's where my, my story takes me, right here to Concord, New Hampshire, where, where I have the joy of, of of serving as your pastor. Now, you know, the powerful thing about stories is that they explain so much about why we are here in the present. You ask someone who's a teacher, what's your story? They might tell you about the time that they had a teacher in junior high who not only taught them math and algebra and geometry, but that had a really personal interest in care for them. You might ask someone who has a fear of elevators, what's your story? And they might say, yeah, I was in sixth grade and got stuck in an elevator between the sixth and seventh floor when I was visiting my grandfather and I'm fearful of elevators now. That's their story. Ask, what's your story to a, an older couple who's been married for 50 years and they're still in love? And their story might begin with this um, awkward junior high dance, goes through high school and how they became sweethearts and married and are fighting to stay in love. That's their story. Everybody has a story. Our stories explain where we are in the present because they draw upon our past. But our stories also give us some sense of where we're going in the future. What Paul is doing here in Col Colossians chapter 1 He's given this big, broad view of what God has done through Jesus Christ to reconcile people to himself. But in verse 21, he starts talking about the Colossians and their story. He says, and here's your story. You don't forget your story. You have a story. You have passed. And you, he says, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of flesh, of his flesh by his death. Here's what's going on. Paul is saying of, of all the stories that we can tell about ourselves, there's one story that is, that is essential. It's one story that defines you. And that is the story about how you were once enemies of God and became his friends. Not just his friends, but his sons and daughters. That's the story that he's focusing on. And that story has a past, a present, and a future. And so I want to unfold the text this way. In that, in that Paul is talking about the past and the present and the future of the Colossians. You see the past in verse 21 and the first part of verse 22. The past is that they were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. God has now reconciled them. The future he deals with in the second part of verse 22 when he says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And then he deals with the present in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. So here's what we have here. We have the problem in the past, the promise for the future, and perseverance in the present. And I can't guarantee that all my sermon outlines will be that alliterated, but there it is. The problem in the past, the promise for the future, and the perseverance in the present. And as we look at 
this, I want you to be asking this question whether what your story is. Most of all, if you, if your story has passed through becoming not God's enemy, but reconciled with God, at peace with God. What God has done for us has implications for our past, future, and present. I want us to look at verse 22 because verse 22 is like the hub of this, this section. It has the main verb and that is he is now reconciled. So before I get into talking about the past and the future and the present, I want to explain the meaning of this word reconciled. Okay, so what does it mean to be reconciled? It's not a, a word that we use very often, but very simply it means this, to make friends of people who were once were enemies. That's what the word reconciled means, to make friends of people who were once were enemies. You might see a couple boys and they're fighting together and, and you just, you ask, what's your story? You find that, that one friend has grabbed the remote control from the other friend's hand that operates his little remote control car, driven it right into the road, and a truck came by and smashed it to pieces. And now they're upset with each other. They're enemies with each other. Two days later, you see them, and they're playing with each other. And yes, what's, what's your story now? You discovered that the boy who was responsible for it, he made it right. He got him a new car. And now they're friends again. Simply, what happened? They've been reconciled. Once enemies, now friends. Now, on an infinitely larger scale, God has reconciled those who believe in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 21. He's talking about the past problem that the Colossians found themselves in. The past problem is that they were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. This is the problem in the past that Paul wants to remind the Colossians of. Here's your story. You had a big problem and your problem was that you were separated from God. Alienated from God. Notice that when Paul is dealing with a problem in the past, he, he pinpoints the, the root problem of every human being. He doesn't say, you who once were poorly educated. He doesn't say, you who once were part of a corrupt political system. He doesn't say, you who had once had shabby health care. No, he's pinpointing the ultimate problem with every human being, and that is that they are hostile to God. And here's what that means. It means something that a lot of people have a hard time accepting, and that is that every human being, by nature, is an enemy with God. This is exactly what the Bible says. There's another letter that Paul wrote. It's the book of Romans, and he writes this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. See, every human being, th this is the reality that we don't like to, often don't like to think about, but every human being is born in this world separated from God. Now, what that doesn't mean, it, it doesn't mean that every, every person, when they become, begin to understand who God is, begins to say, oh, I hate God. That's not, that's not what it means. What it does mean is that when a person begins to understand really who God is, they begin to feel this sense of hostility toward God. When they truly understand the, the truth about God, they begin to feel this distance. Why? Because God is a holy God. And God doesn't tolerate evil. He just doesn't. He can't be God and tolerate evil. And we look at ourselves and we realize, well, I'm not that. I'm not holy. I've got a lot of problems. I've got a lot of things I do. 
You know, we might like a God of our own imagination. We might like a God who is this grandfatherly guy that doesn't interfere with our business and, and kind of leaves us alone and, and smiles and chuckles at us and, and kind of tolerates things. And we might like a God like that, but that is not the God that's presented in the Bible. The God of the Bible, who is the, the true God, is a God who feels indignation at the, at the ungodly every single day. That's not a popular idea, but it's true. And that's why Paul, when he points out the past problem here of the Colossians, he uses these words, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, some, some of you might be thinking, now you're a preacher telling us that people are naturally God's enemies. I mean, that doesn't make us like God. We, we want a God who tolerates us. But you know what? That wouldn't be good news. To have a God who merely tolerates you. That wouldn't be good for God because it means that he wouldn't be completely fair. He would just tolerate evil but not truly deal with it. And it wouldn't be good for us because it would mean that we wouldn't be completely loved. We'd be just tolerated. The good news of the Bible is far better than that God just tolerates us. It is this. God loves us. He loves us so much that he was willing not merely to tolerate us, but to send his son to die for our sins. To actually deal with our biggest problem instead of merely tolerating our problem. That's the God of the Bible, that he so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the, the God of the Bible is a God of love. He is a God of holiness, yes. He is a God of righteousness, yes. He is a God of, of justice, yes. But he is a God of love. A God who is willing to pay the sacrifice for our sins. So we don't want a God who merely tolerates us. We need a God who loves us and that is the God of the Bible. So, what was the problem? The problem was that we are enemies with God. But how was this resolved? We see this in verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now, this phrase is another one of those phrases like Mary Poppins' handbag. Right? There is so much packed into it and you keep pulling out what's there. What does this mean that he reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death? It means this, that in order to bring us to peace with God, somebody had to die. Somebody had to bear the penalty of our sin. And that's what Jesus did. God took on flesh. He bore our suffering. He bore our penalty. He identified with us in every way. He did just with the song that we are singing, his robes for mine, so that we can be embraced and welcomed home. This is what Jesus did for us. It took his death on the cross to make us, to bring us to peace with God. And this, for those of us who have believed in Jesus, is our story. See, our story as believers in Christ has nothing to do with what we achieved our story is not about how I arrived. It's about what Jesus did for us. Our story is not about how I was able to cross this river. Our story is about how someone bore us across the river. Our story is not about how I was able to achieve some standard of perfection. It's about how Jesus achieved that standard of perfection in my behalf. That's what our story is. We have no room for posting whatsoever. We have no room for pride, no room for arrogance. This keeps us humble and joyful. Humble because we have a debt we couldn't pay. And joyful because Jesus paid it for us. 
Humble because we were lost and joyful because we've been found. You see, being a Christian doesn't mean pretending to be perfect. I hope you never get that impression. Being a Christian means that you recognize that you are so deeply flawed that it took somebody to die for you. It means recognizing that you're so deeply broken that it took the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God to, to heal and mend you. We're all broken people. We're all deeply flawed. We all need a perfect Savior. And that's what Jesus is for us. Many people know about the great hymn, Amazing Grace. And the person who wrote that hymn, his name is John Newton. He was a, I was a former slave trader. And the story is told that near the end of his life, he said this, My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I am a great sinner. And that Christ is a great Savior. <laughs> there, is, there is joy and humility at the same time. That's what the cross does for us. And that's why John Newton went on to write those, those words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. There's humility and joy at the same time. That's our past. That's a story of our past. As Christians, we don't have to pretend that we are perfect. We, we know we were not. What we do is point to the perfect Savior. That's our past. We had a problem in the past. Here's how it was solved by the sacrifice of the Son of God. That's our story for those of us who believe in Christ. But it not only affects our past, so our having been reconciled with God is not only a, a, a problem that was solved in the past, but it also means a promise for the future, okay? So we looked at the problem in the past. Remember I said there are three parts, the, the past, the future, and the present. And now we're looking at the future in verse 22. So he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. And here is the, the future. In order to present you holy and blameless and a Above reproach before him. Now, here's the amazing thing about the story for anybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ. Typically, the stories that we can tell, we can only tell about our past, right? We can only talk about the events that have actually happened to us. But, but as believers in Jesus Christ, we know the future too because we have this promise. That one day, because God has brought us into a right relationship with him through Christ, because once we've been enemies, now we've been reconciled, once we were estranged, now sons and daughters, because of that, we have a promise that one day we're going to get to be in the presence of God without sin. Like, that's the future promise. That we can be perfect in his presence. That's exactly what Paul is saying here in the latter part of verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. As believers in Christ, we long for the presence of God. In fact, this is a massive theme throughout the Bible. That the, the place where human beings, the only place where human beings can thrive and flourish. The place that we were meant to be is in the presence of God. We long for his presence. But there's a problem. Because of our sin, we've been estranged from his presence. Now, we know what it's like to want to be in the presence of somebody. When I was working on a degree, I'd have to take uh, trips to the, the seminary where I studied at. And I'd be gone for two weeks at a time. And I wanted to be with my family. And we'd call on the phone and we'd, we'd Skype and, and we'd see each other. But, but nothing replaced just being in the presence of my wife and kids. Because we want to be in the presence of those that we love. We long to be in their presence. How much more would we long to be in the presence of God? Yeah, but there's a problem. Have you ever really not wanted to be in someone's presence because there's a problem between you and them? I remember one time with my brothers, we, 
My brothers and I, we loved to make movies with this video camera. It was an old camcorder. Remember those? And, and uh, we would take it outside and we wanted to make a video of bike stunts. And we wanted to get the best angle on these bike stunts. We put the camera on the parking lot, the, the par the, uh, parking lot on the ground. And we made a ramp and we were jumping the bikes and stuff. But we got our angle a little too close to the bike jumping. And one of us, I won't say exactly who it was, but one of us drove our bike right into that camcorder. I remember seeing that camcorder spin across the asphalt and realize, oh no, I'm in big trouble because that was my dad's camcorder. I remember coming back home with that, that camcorder, the, the casing was kind of cracked and, and, and you know my brothers and I, we just kind of sneaked into the house. Didn't want to make a big ruckus. We didn't really want to be in the presence of our parents knowing what we had done. You know, if you feel a sense of shame and guilt being in the presence of somebody you know you've offended, how much, how much more horrible would it be to be in the presence of a perfectly righteous God. The presence of God would not be a place of joy if you're not worthy to stand in his presence. How can the, how can the presence of God ever be a place of joy for people who are unworthy to be in that presence? Only if God does something to change them. Only if God does something to make us so that we can be in his presence without any spots, without any flaws, without any failures. And that's exactly what God promises for us. That's exactly what, God, what Paul is writing when he says he's reconciled us in order that we would be presented holy and blameless before him. Who are, gonna, are we going to be with? We're going to be with God. How is that even possible? How can that even be a place of joy and not shame? Only if God changes us, which is what he is doing. Yes, in the past, he's made us his sons and daughters. He's guaranteed that for the future. But one day, my friends, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will see him face to face and you'll be like him. That's an amazing promise for the future. And we can know that for those, those of us who have, are, have believed in Jesus Christ. Other passages teach us as well. This is the whole aim of, of God's uh, orchestrating every event in your life. He's, he's making you more like his son, Jesus Christ. That's the promise for those of us who are believers in Christ. Now, we not only have a problem in the past that we see in verse 21 and 22, that having been alienated and hostile in our minds, not only do we have this promise for the future, was that, which is that we'll be perfect in his presence, but third and finally, that means perseverance for the present. Remember I said that whatever your story is, what's your story? It, it, it informs, yes, your past, but it also has implications for your present. So the story that God has reconciled those who are alienated with God and, and brought them to become his friends, his sons and daughters, this means something for us now. What does it mean? Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here's what the, here's what the past, our past problem and our future promise, here's what it means for us for the present. It means this, perseverance. If you know that God has brought you into a right relationship with him, and if you know that one day you will stand in his presence completely free of all the flaws 
that characterize your life right now so that you could be in his presence with joy, if you know that, here's what that means for you right now, is that you can keep on persevering with what you know to be true. That you could not move from the hope of the gospel which is stable and steadfast. That you can continue in the faith. Your past problem and the promised future means that you can have present perseverance. Your past problem and it having been solved because of Jesus Christ. And the future promise means that you can have perseverance in the present. What does that perseverance look like? It looks like this. Continue in the faith. There are certain things that you know to be true. Don't doubt them. There are certain things that God has trusted you, entrusted you to know. That he's good. That he's in control of your life. That there's nothing that's outside the bounds of his gracious and loving sovereignty. That's true. You've got to cling to that. You've got to live in light of that truth. You can't despair. You can't give up. You can't say, no, I don't believe this is true anymore. Why? Because something has happened to change you in the past. And you've got a glorious promise for the future. And so right now, you can put one foot in front of the other. You can persevere in the faith and not move from the hope of the gospel. That's what that looks like. It looks like being stable and steadfast, like a building that's not wobbling in every wind. It isn't crumbling when there's an earthquake. That's the kind of stability that you could have in Jesus Christ because of what he's done for you in the past and because of his promise for you in the future. This is a call to persevere. And how is this possible? Look at this phrase in verse 23. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. You know, we've seen the hope, this idea of hope earlier in this chapter. We saw this in verse uh, 5. When Paul says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You know what? We are naturally hopers. We're always hoping for something. If you're unmarried, often you're hoping that you're going to get married. Hoping to have children. Hoping to retire someday. You're hoping, you're, we're, we're just always hoping. That we're innately people who put our hope in things. But bundle all those hopes up. And there's only one hope that is so secure, it'll never move. You may dis be disappointed on many, in many areas of life. Many of your hopes may be dashed, just like a piece of porcelain on a kitchen floor, but there's one hope that can never be dashed, and that is your hope in Jesus Christ. That is the unfailing hope that what Jesus has done for you means that you will one day be in the presence of God. That hope is secure. That's why you can persevere. That hope is not changing. Don't move from that hope. Every single day, you're tempted to put your hope in something else. Every single day, you're tempted to put your hope in something that can fade and fail. It'll always disappoint you. There's only one place you could put your hope that you'll never be disappointed. And that is in the hope of the gospel. In John Bunyan's famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, these two characters in that allegory, Christian, who's the main character, and he has his travel companion, whose name is Hopeful. You may be familiar with the story, but if you aren't Christian and hopeful, they're going along to the celestial city. It's a kind of representation of heaven. And the, the path along the way is supposed to represent our lives and the different decisions we make and the different trials that we confront. And they somehow get off this path. They take a bad turn and they end up in this really bad place called Doubting Castle. And they end up being imprisoned by giant despair. And giant despair is trying to make them give up all hope. 
In fact, he, give, he gives them, he put, he, they're in his cage, they're, given, they're, they're behind bars, and he gives them things that they can, they can use to, to kill themselves. And he says, just, just give up on life. And Hopeful, who is Christian's companion, begins to encourage Christian because he's on the verge of just giving it all up. He says, I'm done. I'm out of here. And Hopeful says this, hey, remember how the Lord has brought us to this point. Don't you remember that enemy Apollyon? Apollyon could not crush you. Remember how you got to the valley of the shadow of death? What hardship, terror, and amazement you've already been through? Now see that we're in this dungeon together. I'm a far weaker man by nature than you are. And this giant has wounded me as well as you. Yes, he's cut off our bread and water from our supply. But let us exercise a little more patience. Remember how the Lord brought us through the vanity, vanity fair. Remember how you were neither afraid of the chain, nor of the cage, nor of the bloody death. Let's bear up with patience as well as we can. And it was a little later that Christian realized that he had a key in his pocket that unlocked the prison that they were in. And the name of that key was Promise. My friends, it is the promises of God that sustain our hopes and keep us from despair. You may need that promise today. That promise says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you through the valley. I have a plan for you that you can have a hope and a future. Those are the promises that God gives you so that you can have hope and not despair, courage and not fear triumph and not defeat. This is what God is doing for us. These are the promises that he's given us and this is why we can persevere in the present because we have the, the, the problem that's been solved, the greatest problem. We've been reconciled with God and we have a promise, the greatest promise for the future and that is we'll stand before his presence perfect and so we can persevere. Persevere in the present. Now it could be this morning that this story, remember I started by saying that we all have a story but maybe this story isn't your story. Maybe your story is that you are still alienated and hostile in mind from God. You're still far from God. My friend, this story can be your story if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. We were once enemies now reconciled. How does that happen? It happens when you call in the name of the Lord Jesus and believe that what he did on the cross was for you. And for those of us who have done that, persevere. Don't give up. Don't move away from the hope of the gospel.